Hey guys, thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. It's been a busy week, been putting out like two episodes a day, doesn't usually happen, but that's great. I'll take the traffic while I'm not working, which is starting pretty soon. Um, today, I've got a guy on that I've known about for probably two years now, and we actually ended up crossing paths in Vegas at Freedom Fest, um, and we might have actually been in the same room before in New Hampshire during the Tulsi Gabbard campaign. I'm not sure. I don't really know. We'll probably get into that. But he is the co-host of the count, uh, the Convo Couch, and he hosts the Morning Wake Up Show. He is Pasta Georgula. How are you doing this morning, man? Or this good. afternoon? I was <laughs> not morning. <laughs> I'm doing good, Reed. Man. Reed, thank you so much for uh, having me on, man. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So let's start with what I was saying there. Were you? I know you were. A Tulsi supporter. Were you out in New Hampshire at all? And yeah, yeah, I think we were in the same room uh, back then. So I think we were just small names. We weren't Reed Coverdale and Pasta like we are now. You know, like a, oh yeah, the huge firebrands that we I'm are saying. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got security yeah. at the door, making sure that people don't come in while we're doing the show. That's you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, important stuff going on here. Um, yeah, that campaign was interesting because there were it was uh it wasn't very ideological, you know, it was kind of centered around foreign policy and you had communists, conservatives, libertarians, anarchists, you know, Republicans, Democrats, Trump people, some like Bernie people, even like some former Hillary people all joined together. I've never seen anything like that before and I haven't seen it since, frankly, like everything I've been involved with since then has been pretty ideologically aligned. But um, was that remarkable to you too to see that? Was that the had you seen that type of thing before, or was that kind of special in your eyes too? It was kind of special in my eyes. You know, um, it really was. It was just a great mixture um, of people. So you know, I mean, uh, and and in Tulsi in New Hampshire was just awesome, right? You get to meet all these people coming in from New York. Uh, coming in from Massachusetts, people that live there, you know, and here we are coming out. We actually did the trip with uh, Nico. Uh, so running around with the campaign and, and on that particular uh, primary in that state, a lot of stuff happened for me personally. You know, Tulsi had spoke to a bunch of people and one of the messages that she had uh, kind of, I think, uh, expressed to us was the fact that and because Donald Trump was in town. Remember, Trump was having a big rally when yeah, yeah. when we were there in, in uh, New Hampshire. It was crazy. So um, she's like, you know, she talked about like not buying in to the cancel culture thing and not, you know, kind of shaming people who think differently than us. Uh, and, um, you know, we had some people that were in the uh, the, the campaign, Eileen Tepper in particular. Yep. That's it. She's probably going to check out the show and watch the show. Um, she came in from, uh, I think, New York, and yep. she talked about, you know, her experiences about that. She went over and tried to talk to some Trump people were there, and they had her sit down at her dinner table, and they had an amazing conversation. Uh, and when she talked about it, she kind of, you know, broke into tears. And um, it, it was just one of those moments when I realized that anybody uh, that I'd kind of fought with, you know, personally over the whole Trump thing, you know, because I bought in, I was a, a Bernie person first, and. You know, then I bought into that whole bullshit, the, the cancel culture. Well, I immediately looked at those people differently. You know, like my mother, like, you know, people were like, oh, Trump people, they're bad. They were not. They're awful. You got 86 of them. They're the worst people in the world. I'm like, what do you want me to do to my mother? Bring her out back and put her down like old yeller. It was like, you know, I mean, so it, it that was something that really changed for me personally. You know, where I for some reason, you know, I was still kind of connected to that. Who you are politically is who you are as a person. I don't necessarily think that now necessarily. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't make everything about who you are necessarily. And there's going to be people with different ideas. And I think that was kind of, you know, uh, one of the thrusting points of sorts of my career to say, hey, listen, I want to make sure I talk to different people. I want to talk to conservatives. I want to talk to libertarians. You know, I always made the joke. I was a I had uh, I had civil I'm a civil liberties guy was the mm -hmm. thing I did for like a whole first two years of the convo couch because I was a progressive, but I always wanted to express that I believe strongly in my civil liberties. And that's what that Tulsi campaign to me was all about protecting our civil liberties. So. Yeah. I have a lot of really important friendships that, you know, last to this day, Eric Jackman met him on that campaign. Um, you know, other people that I still talk to other people I still have on the show. And um, it was 
eye-opening for me because I had never been in like a left-leaning campaign or group of people ever in my life like i had an uncle who lived out in arizona who was kind of liberal and then i had some friends who were kind of liberal but i'd never like sat down and really listened to people from the other side of the aisle because i was brought up really religious conservative and then once i i uh, graduated from high school i kind of shifted over into the libertarian camp but i never had really you know, spent a lot of time with people talking about their political beliefs who were from the other side. And I realized there was a lot more crossover than I had thought. I was I was shocked because to me, you know, big government liberal. And I know that you're going to cringe at that term, but that that was like what <laughs> I just looked everyone. Uh, I looked at everyone on that side as that meant like the government has to do everything for me. The government has to control everything. And I don't want people to have any freedoms and I want everything restricted. And then I found out, you know, all these people really care about a lot of the same things I do. And then after the campaign with everything that's happened over the last couple of years, a lot of people cared about the same restrictions on our civil liberties and our natural human rights, you know, locking us in our houses and bailing out Wall Street while we're stuck without jobs. I realized, wow, there's really a lot of bipartisan uh, concern over these issues. And we've used a lot of labels and a lot of partisanship that's stopped us from talking to each other. And that was one of the reasons I decided to start my show, because I, I just realized people don't have an accurate view of what other people think. Like you, everyone just builds up these walls with uh you know with, with um language and then they never end up talking to each other and realizing wow we actually agree on a lot of this stuff did you have a moment it sounds like you did because you were saying trump people used to have this opinion of them but is that campaign one of the first times you started realizing that and where did you see like a lot of that overlap take a place well, I mean, that is the first campaign that I kind of did see like the other side. I really did. You know, I mean, I believe the marketing that's put out there, like you talk about the walls that are put up, you know, the, the, I go kind of refer to it sometimes as the marketing. This is what, you know, these people stand for over here, you know, and you know, the big thing with a lot of Trump people was was the wall thing. Right. And I think progressives equated that to some form of racism, like, you know, like, hey, what's going on, dude? Like. You're really just going to be open about the fact that you're racist, that you don't want other people coming into this country. Right. You know, mm -hmm. so I think I think I believed a little bit in the marketing for a little while. You know, I I didn't there was no independent media really at the time. So I think a lot of our opinions were formed from what we saw on the boob tube or where we got our news from. And before, you know, we all realized that, you know, the mainstream. I mean, when I say we all I'll speak for myself and people like myself who eventually realized that the pro it was nothing but propaganda and then we started seeking the truth we saw answers there you know what i'm saying but you know that was definitely the first campaign in which i uh, i saw that kind of movement together and i was like okay this is this is there's something to it let me speak to these people and then as i spoke to them like you just said you know they didn't realize you know <laughs> what we stood for some of us because and i think people are still kind of confused about that even the people i think that are very very wrong right now a lot of my old progressive friends that still will support bernie sanders are still inside the democratic party believe that they're voting against trump is uh, mitigating damage and you know they support all these other establishment candidates even though they don't even you know kind of <laughs> really look into their policies and see what they're voting for where they get their money from at the end of the day, I still think the majority of those people, they, they're doing what they think is the most compassionate thing. They yeah. think that it's they're helping minorities. They think that they're helping uh, black people. They think that they're, you know, what I'm saying um, when, in fact, I think, you know, the whole thing that they've bought into um, because they're they're some some in some way they are justified through the establishment system that they can be rotten and mean to the other people. So in actuality, they're so duped when, you know, they're very, you know, attacking a, a Trump person or whatnot. They're actually becoming what they are supposedly supposed to hate. And I don't think that they understand that, you know, they believe they are actually punching a Nazi in the nose because they, you know, they listen to the marketing. But that is this that is something I think that the Tulsi and that's why people have a hard time holding Tulsi accountable now from some of the things that she's kind of gone off a little bit 
you know, where I don't support her anymore. When I say I don't support her, it's like I'm just, you know, I was more of an activist and a, an endorser of her, and I want, I, I supported her fully. Now I, you know, I don't, you know, I, and I think that's kind of where I need to be anyways, doing this and this getting bigger and what we're doing and getting more eyes. We have to be more, you know, uh, uh, just neutral. We can't really pick sides. So I think it's good for my, for my job. But at the end of the day, it's because of her mishaps. But that whole movement of us, you know, what we experienced, all people coming together, like you said, being with leftists. And me too. When I went up to New Hampshire, I met the Jackmans. You know, I met I met libertarians, right-leaning uh, libertarians. I'm a left-leaning libertarian. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm not in the party yet, but I say I'm a leftist libertarian. That's why I look at myself because, once again, I hold my civil liberties, freedom of the press so high. That's why the libertarian label I use here and there, but, um, yeah, I mean that, that, that whole movement, it was just, it, it was amazing. It was amazing with the Tulsi stuff. And that's why they have a hard time letting go because of yeah. that magic that was captured in a bottle that we experienced talking to different people. It just felt good. You know, at first we were afraid. I mean, I know there was a lot of people that were afraid to talk to Trumpers and people thought, thought differently than them, but when we were able to say, screw it, you know, we're just going to tr- remember the spirit of Aloha. She called oh, it. Oh yeah. Something special there, man. And the macadamia like, nut toffee, there. you know. Oh, <laughs> she brought that to New Hampshire, that stuff. Oh, yeah. Holy cow. Yep. You yeah. That? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. I think that is why it was hard for so many people to let it go. And it's um, it's kind of amazing. Like, I, what I've seen is there are a lot of people who had never been politically involved. And then she got them politically involved. And then they have like, no, they don't really have anything to stand on other than her. So when she does something that's wrong, people like you and me will be like, no, like, I'm sorry. This is, <laughs> you know, I, I supported her because of what she stood for, not just because she's great and, you know, in the spirit of Aloha or whatever, when she endorses Don Baldick or something like, no, that's just, that's wrong. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the cult of personality with that campaign was really strong because she had a great personality. You know, all these other people like, does Biden have a personality? I mean, does, I mean, Trump has a bit of a personality, I guess, but a lot of these people don't have that type of personality. And I think that added a lot into making it hard to let go too. Yeah. But it's like you said, at the end of the day, we we don't really, we never really supported Tulsi. We supported the issues and she stood by the issues. And that's why we were there. The personality thing. Yeah. That's a bonus. That's cool. Like, I remember when she went on Bill Maher. Well, eight of us got tickets and we snuck into the studio. And it's like a Bill Maher studio is probably like 100 people, if that, probably 75, 85 people, whatever. It's not a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, we cheered when she came out and she didn't know we were going to be there. And she smiled so hard you can see her gums. And we knew it was like a genuine smile and stuff. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? And then she texted us. We took a picture from the table. We sent it to her. And then she texted us back, everybody. You know what I'm saying? She's. She's cool. That that stuff is awesome. And it's great to see her, you know, when she does her speech. She called me out for not going to a workout on the beach when I was in L.A., like at a, in, in a libertarian household uh, that was somebody was doing a fundraiser for her. Um, and there's all these things that are great. You know, when she goes and picks up trash at the beach for her, her birthday, uh, she was in L.A. for her birthday one day. And uh, we set it up where we went to a park and we picked up trash and we were laughing and having a good time. That stuff's great. That's all a bonus. But that's not why you support somebody or you stand behind somebody. They're still a civil servant. You know, you're still their constituent. They have a job to do. If they do their job poorly, whether you like them or not, you call them out. That's it. Yeah. And, and big ups to the New Hampshire uh, Twitter out there. Whoever's whoever's doing that thing there, Reed. That's great. Uh, calling out people here and there. I like that. Yeah. I like that Twitter handle. Yeah. Yeah. We hold people accountable over here. Um you know, I actually, I feel like someone with the personality of Rand Paul is the easiest type of guy to hold accountable because, you know, he votes right on a lot of stuff. But when he doesn't, it's really easy to criticize him because he's just such a he's such a grump, you know, so you just don't feel bad. Like, hey, dude, what the hell? Why'd you do that? Like yeah. when when you have someone who's that nice, it's harder to turn on them and be like, hey, what exactly. the hell? You know, <laughs> it's like Tulsi. Can I get a second? Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Drone drone strikes in Afghanistan. <laughs> really not that great, Tulsi. Please, yeah, <laughs> going off to to Africa to do yeah. a mission, find Al Qaeda to help destabilize. Is that really a good idea? Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. 
when you yeah. call out Putin saying, you know, like the nuclear weapon thing, like when he didn't say that's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes it way harder. But um, Paul, you just want to smack him in the back of the head, by the way. Rand Paul, you just, come on, dude. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can tell he hates being there and he's not going to get any more pissed off if you, you know, if you barrage him anyway. So he, he's like perfect for that. But um, yeah, so you uh we were actually gonna do a show like a month ago and then i when i texted you you were headed to brazil and i'm not gonna pretend to know anything about what's going on over there because i don't really have read a couple articles but it looks like it was a very close election lots of people are saying it was stolen and they want recounts but you were actually there so what what was going on there why'd you go there and what, what did you see while you were there okay so you know, one of the when I went to New Hampshire, it's kind of funny. Um, I met a lot of people in the Tulsi campaign, and I'd say twenty percent of the people that I met that were part of the campaign volunteers, um, maybe fifteen, but right around there, were specifically Tulsi followers because of the help. I believe what was the name of her act? The election. She had an election bill that she had floated out there. The uh, Securing America's Elections exactly. Act. Yeah. That one. Yeah. Well, they 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 had a bill very similar in name that they brought up after that. Um, some of the like widening them. But anyways, in that bill, she had talked about very vaguely, but she mentioned an open source software versus proprietary software. She she didn't present a lot of solutions in that bill, but she did say she wanted open studies, you know, and for us to understand what was going on. Uh, elections is the thing. In 2016, um, the Bernie Sanders case where Bernie Sanders supporters, not Bernie Sanders, but Bernie Sanders supporters sued the DNC for holding a fraudulent election, not abiding by their charter, which says they have to give a Democratic election, the Democratic Party, that is. Um, well, in that case, the lawyer for the Democratic Party said his name was Bruce Beaver. He stood up and said, technically, if they wanted to, the Democratic Party can go into the back room full of cigar smoke and pick whoever they want. We're just allowed to do that. And they eventually dismissed the case, notwithstanding, um, which is what a lot of judges do. They don't touch these cases at all. And it's kind of sad that they don't. Um, but that kind of radicalized me for elections. And that became a, an issue of mine. And ever since then, I tried to learn everything about elections as I can, starting in the United States. Uh, and when I got pretty active in that, because remember, we, we when I met you and it, it possibly I think we ran into each other in that uh that bar, the Tulsi, her, her party there. You yeah, were there, I, I, I were there, yeah. So that's yeah, that's where we ran in that night. Um, I we were out there to look at the primary, and we were looking at it, and uh, from a technical point of view. So we went and talked to election officials. We went and seen the machines. Um, you know, they talked about a SIM card being inside the the, the machines. They kind of like, oh no, there's a SIM card in there. I'm like, yeah, okay. So it's connected to the internet, pretty much. Like you know, and it was interesting enough that Tulsi got the eight percent that she was polling at in all the hand counted places but less than two percent in the machine counted places a, a lot of them that we discovered you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. um we didn't necessarily share this information with the campaign but we were looking at it and you know it looked a little funny uh but these are the problems that were there these are the these were the issues um and so i also started studying international elections as you know, coming on the left, but I come from like the anti-imperialist left, right? The foreign policy left. That was the reason why we started the Combo Couch. We wanted to get grassroots, independent candidates, top candidates, time for interviews that they couldn't get in the mainstream. We want to get them some some airtime. Uh, and we also wanted to, you know, to take foreign policy issues. And this is why we also like Tulsi as well. And we wanted to bring them to our progressive friends. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we had all these anti-imperialist friends that would go to these countries and observe their elections. And one day a friend of mine says, hey, man, we're going to go to the Nicaraguan election and observe it. I don't think they have a lot of people who kind of do what you guys do, meaning a lot of the people that go there, they're there. To, they're like the real social justice warriors, not the bullshit ones we have in the United States. They go there. They see the socioeconomic problems. They see they talk to a lot of Afro indigenous. They get their stories. They, you know, they examine what the military does, the coups, the whole nine yards. Um but they don't like scrutinize the process of elections. And for quite some time, uh, me and my partners, we, you know, Fiorella, uh, we believe that the only way to a true democracy it was, is with free, fair and transparent elections. Now, I think Fiorella is kind of I don't want to speak for her, but I think she's moved beyond counting on elections. You know and I'm saying like voting out an oligarchy is not going to happen, especially when they have the whole system under control. 
So what we sure. do is we just constantly highlight the process of elections. And we were able to go to Nicaragua. Then we went to Honduras, Peru, Colombia, then last Brazil. Uh, so I know this was a long story to get to Brazil, but that's how it happened. We just started studying international elections because there's two things, reasons we wanted to do it, Reed. Uh, number one, we know that uh, our government uh, is all about empire and they like to go in there and change regimes, especially in the global south and Latin America, uh, because they want to put in their own puppets so they can extract the resources, force the monetary system. We know this game. I mean, this is and, and this is where, you know, I like calling myself a libertarian nowadays because Ron Paul is like the only true guy to stick it through and be the real true non-interventionist out there and call every single intervention sure. out. He's one of the best. Um, but um, we we would go down, examine these elections, look at the, the process. So we end up in Brazil. And from all the other elections, we were able to go back into the United States and say, hey, listen, ladies and gentlemen, this is a big scam. This is probably the biggest scam. The fact that you can't have free, fair, transparent elections in one day uh, with results that night is ridiculous. And you can have fair ones, too, as well, with mandatory ID, showing up at your designated uh, polling spot, your, your voting spot, efficiency, and make sure that you get through the lines quickly because the average time to vote in Colombia is six minutes. The average time to vote in, in uh, Nicaragua is seven minutes. I mean, it's like it's ridiculous. And our elections, ours. You know, so who wants to participate in that? That's the reason why people went to go to mail-ins. And guess what? In the five countries I, I went to, no mail-in ballots, no drop boxes in the middle of nowhere. It's public counting in front of everybody. They take it out, out of the ballot box. There's a strict chain of custody. Um, clean voter rolls. You have to register the vote each election. You know what I'm saying? There's uh, there's stuff you have to do. And I'm not saying that we have to do all these things, but you know the fact that we we can't have results in election. I think it took like a week, but we're like, oh, finally they called the Arizona race a week yeah. after. I mean, you can just keep counting until you get the results you want. For crying out loud. Um, so, you know, that's what we were doing. So Brazil, we went down to Brazil, and Brazil is a little bit interesting because there is vulnerabilities in the system. It has all those securities we just talked about. Clean voter rolls. you got to register within five months of that election. Uh, one day of voting. It's on a Sunday on a national holiday. That's what they do in all these countries. We need to do the same thing. You have to show up at your designated place with ID. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and then they do public counting. But the public counting comes out of a machine, and the voting is in the machine. So that's why I gave it a B minus rating because it has all those securities and you get the results that night. It has all those securities, but it does have a, what's called a DRE, direct recorded electronic device. So in other words, you get your ID, you go into the machine, you hit your buttons, and then you're done. No paper comes out, no receipt, no nothing. But it is open source software. All the candidates have a right to go look at the software to check the machines. Um, they're, they're not connected to the internet. I took my phone and I went around. So I went to an opening and I went to a closing and I, where I went, I took my phone and I went by each machine and there was no internet picking up. I looked to make sure to see if it was it plugged into any internet was not plugged into any internet. Um, so there, even though I will never ever, ever completely trust a, a DRE voting machine. And that's why I gave it a B minus there. I haven't seen the solid proof that there was any monkey business going around. And to be perfectly honest with you, Reed, this is where I'm crazy right now. I'm kind of glad I'm on this show today because the right, you know, the Jack Posobics, the freaking Steve Bannons, the Info Wars, even yeah. Tucker was a little bit bad on this, right? They're just kind of trying to make these false comparisons to like what happened in the States in 2020. Some of them even use the word ballots. There are no ballots in Brazil. It's a direct recording device. It's on a machine. So there's no ballots. They try to say there's dumps. There's no dumps. And then they try to say that Lula was kind of like Biden and Bolsonaro was like Trump. And from what I've noticed, a lot of the stuff that you're seeing on, on, on TV, some of it, they keep showing the old independence parade that Bolsonaro also had a rally on during that Brazilian Independence Day. A friend of mine was at that rally. You know, you know my boy, Danny Shaw, he told me about it. So they kind of use that rally. That had like a million people and stuff that that came out for Independence Day across the country and act like it was just a Bolsonaro rally. You know what I'm saying? Because Bolsonaro kind of adapted the, the colors of the flag, the green and the yellow of Brazil for his campaign colors where Lula was red and black. So, you know, the Lula people, you see them with the L and they wear the red and black 
and Bolsonaro, they wear the green and the yellow, the traditional Brazilian soccer colors. Um, but the thing is, is that Lula was twice the president. He was thrown in jail by the help of our State Department, then released from evidence that Glenn Greenwald got a hold of. Uh, he eradicated extreme poverty at one point. And uh, when we went to the favelas, we were there for 12 days, and we talked to everybody, Reed. Cab drivers, waiters. We met with all the labor groups. We go on the streets. You know, the Convo Couch does their work. When when people give us coin to go to these places, we come back with a lot of content. We met with the election officials. We went with them for an hour and a half before uh, to ask everything about the system. Got all their information. That's how I know all the how the system works because we do our due diligence. But the 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 really disingenuous part about that right conservative part is they're trying to make Lula look like Biden. He's not. Like I said, two-time president, jailed, eradicated extreme poverty at one point. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and it's just wrong to say that. There's a reason. When we went into the favelas, the poorest people in there, all the labor groups too, the MST, they liked Lula. He wasn't a communist, but he was definitely a compromise between the capitalists and communists because he would allocate resources and money and food to all the poorer places. This is where that group feels that they were disenfranchised from Bolsonaro, okay? That the extreme poor, the labor groups, the small agriculture. See, and when people talk about Lula's relationship to the WEF and his love for vaccines, and he does like vaccines, he says he's not going to mandate it, but he says he's going to, you know, he'll he'll get some, and I'm sure he'll do that. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't say that verbatim, but that's the insinuation. They talked about H1N1, the way he liked the results of that when he was the president and how they used that vaccine. Uh, so I think he's a little bit duped. His connections to Wall Street, the banks, um, his connections to Obama and Biden and everything. And it's obvious that Biden wanted Lula and they didn't want Bolsonaro anymore. They didn't want the Bolsonaro experiment. Uh, but all these leaders, read uh, when I went, when, when I went to Colombia and, and Petro was getting into power, uh, which is considered a leftist. But once again, not a hardcore leftist, kind of like a middle of the road guy. When we went in Honduras, Zimara Castro, who was Manuel Zelaya's, li- Manuel Zelaya's wife. Um, all these leaders have to do business with the devil inside their house. In other words, when a leader walks into his living room, the devil's already sitting there eating uh, eating crumpets and having tea. Uh, all these countries are infested with NGOs. A lot of these countries, like Colombia, like Honduras, have huge military bases with American troops there. You know, if the if the leaders step out of line, they'll be cooed the very next day. Manuel mm-hmm. Zelaya was taken out of his house in his underwear during the Obama administration when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. Because he joined Alba, and they weren't going to mess around with that. So they they took him out. And we know what we do in Haiti. So there's a way that a lot of these leaders, where some of them, uh, people like us in the States, were like, oh, they're entitled with globalists. They're entitled with globalists. They got to deal with these people. There's no way they can deal with, deal with Adam. And I think the United States, I think the United States is now at a point where they're compromising with the people they're allowing in. Because they realize if they push too far, they'll have another Cuba, Nicaragua. Uh, Venezuela, will they'll lose the country because they they show too much muscle and the people will say no, they'll they'll reject it. So they're in that way. But when it comes to Brazil, Bolsonaro also led in all these multinational corporations. And this is coming from the labor groups that told me this. Uh, Monsanto, they tried to get rid of the small farmer there pretty much. And there was a lot of indigenous people who was fighting over property rights where all these major corporations were grabbing all these resources. A lot of talk about what he did in the Amazon. There's a reason why people voted against him, too. There's The poverty issue there is ridiculous. Fiorella had her phone stolen by a bike with somebody going by. My friend Danny Shaw. I mean, it's just like there looks like there's some social and civil unrest there. And that's why there's a lot of people that did reject Bolsonaro and went with Lula. It's logical to think that Lula won. And that's what they're trying to tell you is not happening. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and that's the thing that just drives me crazy. There's a reason why people would reject Bolsonaro. You know, and they're and they're just being disingenuous. Does that mean there's no uh, um, fraud? I haven't seen it. You know, mm-hmm. what I'm saying I, I would take the Brazilian system a thousand times over the United States system. I don't want a DRE machine, and I think they should eventually go to hand marked paper ballots, like we saw Colombia, Honduras, uh, Nicaragua, and Peru do, and they count them in public. I mean, I think that's the best way. But right now, I just see two sides being really, really disingenuous because all those things we talked about, Lula too, Reed. The left never mentions them. They skip over them. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm really upset right now that Lula's at the B20 and the G20. 
Like, why? You have shit. You haven't even signed your fucking. You're not even the president yet. Go back home and try to quell this situation and get it under control because there are rallies out there. So, I mean, but I mean, I'm not going to hold that against Lula. At the end of the day, I all I care about is that the people get to decide their leader. And I still think that Lula won won the election until proven uh, otherwise, because ver- people are very vague about this whole situation. And here's the thing, too, Reed. It's the same. Si- it's the same system that Bolsonaro won five elections on in Congress, his last presidency. Mm-hmm. Right. So why all of a sudden when you lose, you complain about it now? Yeah. I don't well, know. That's how it's, it works. Yeah. <laughs> that's how everyone does it. It's, it. Not, it's um, not like Donald Trump, right? With mm-hmm. 2020, everything changed, Reed. They put all these drop boxes out there, mass mail outs. They did all these things. They changed all these rules. So to make these comparisons, it's not right. So what type of uh, transformation is going to take place with Bolsonaro leaving um, and Lula going in? Like, is it going to be a radical change or does the president, uh, how much power does he have? He's got a decent amount of power to allocate some money and resources, but I mean, they have all the bullshit we have in this country. I mean, that, that's the thing is I talked to one of the, I talked to a doctor out there uh, and we talked about ivermectin and, you know, this is the area where a lot of, uh, you know, Patriots, America first people, the Bannon crew, the reason why they like Bolsonaro is Bolsonaro is probably one of the most anti-vaccine presidents out there, except he'd say stupid shit like, Hey man, you take this vaccine, you're going to turn into an alligator. Yeah. Well, nobody's going to take you serious when you say that, but he highly rejected it. He did try to get ivermectin out to a lot of people. Uh, but when I say Brazil has the same crap that we have over here, I mean, they got a, str- uh, they got a stranglehold uh, from the global economy and uh, Big Pharma out there. You know, their media, they have media issues, too, as well, that control everything. But I don't know what kind of transformation is going to take place. I know this much. Bolsonaro waited a couple days, then he made the announcement. He didn't necessarily say the words concede. He didn't say the Lula's name, uh, but his chief of staff came up uh, to the microphone and said, we're starting the transition process. So they are starting the transition process. They have started it. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of people in the streets for a little bit, but I think they'll eventually go back home. And then I think that Bolsonaro will do the same thing that Donald Trump's doing. Do his campaign for the next you know, two, four, two to four years to run mm-hmm. for president when he gets a chance again. I mean, here's the thing, really, you know, and I know a lot of people are in the streets with the, the whole Bolsonaro thing, and it might seem that, you know, this is just robbery, highway robbery. No, there's plenty of Lula people out there. The country's split. It, it's there's something that's really, you know, it, it also has the same culture read where the middle class or the lower class, like all the gig workers, the Uber workers and stuff, and we talk to the, a lot of them, they, there is kind of like a little looking down upon the poorest of the poor, right? Like they despise mm. them in a way. But Lula talked about this years ago, right? He says, people hated me during my presidency because they saw some of the poorest people at the airport where they can travel now. They can eat, you know what I'm saying? And I think the allocating of money or resources to a lot of people in that lower class who are just working their ass off, they, there's resentment there. And I feel that same thing in our country here as I did in Brazil, you know, and mm-hmm. um, that's why it's split. I mean, Bolsonaro had to kind of govern over the, the, the COVID era. Right. So uh, the country really had hard times financially. It, I mean, it's bad. The, the homeless problem, bad. Sao Paulo, uh-uh, you know what I'm saying? Um, but he didn't really reside over any big economic times. But what he did bring was the culture war stuff. There's a lot of conservative people. Brazil's a conservative country. There's con- people are conservative there. You know what I'm saying? They're Christian, mm-hmm. Christian conservative. And I think that is what really his whole movement was. It was a lot like, you know, the culture war Trump stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about Jack Posobiec and the Tucker Carlson's and uh, Steve Bannon's of the world, um, you know, that, that kind of bleeds a little bit into the libertarian movement with... You know, they're anti-regime change until it's a socialist, you know, then it's like, oh, well, you know, I mean, when you, when you start talking about South American countries or China or something, you know, I feel like this sentiment is finally starting to go away a little bit. But especially a couple of years ago, um, once you start talking about socialism and communism, then suddenly cooing isn't actually so bad. And, you know, sanctions might not actually be the worst thing in the world. And maybe we should kind of make them fear us. Um, it's just a, it's a kind of a, 
an amazing phenomenon. But what's kind of funny is now you're seeing that on the left. I know, you know, like the, the Democrats feel the same way about that, too. You know, some of them are almost worse than the Republicans on that shit. It's just kind of amazing to witness. Yeah, well, we, we, we couldn't leave Afghanistan because the Taliban was going to be mean to the woman. We got to yeah. get Putin out of pop power because he's anti-LGBT. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's they justify their their beats. It's just, you know, they just take the glorification of their candidates, of their party, of their virtue signaling, thinking they're right and the other person's wrong. And they just play team sports with it. You're you're absolutely right. And the controllers know how to move these people in, a, in, in, a, in the right way. And I'm so glad you brought up the socialist thing because it's like, you know, Rand Paul's book. By the way, I told the story when you guys, you, Clint. You, and I can't remember who else it was. We were standing in the middle, like of the uh, of the the aisle where your booth was. Oh yeah. And yeah. I went, I'm like, guys, Ron Paul signing books, and you guys are like, what? And you guys are about. I mean, I'm like, oh, I mean, Ran. And you're like, oh. <laughs> like, yes, a bit of a difference. <laughs> it was like it was this. <laughs> Sorry, Rand. We got a nice toaster. Go home, pal. Yeah. <laughs> but he his book was called The Case Against Socialism, whatever mm-hmm. it was. And you're right. There's a justification. There's a manufacturing of consent that if we're going to go down and remove Daniel Ortega from Nicaragua, we're removing him because he's a socialist. But here's the thing that I'm trying to do, too, as well. And this is something I hope that some of my friends who said they would do it would do it. Come with me down to these countries, to Nicaragua, because they're socially conservative. Mm-hmm. They really are. They, You know what I'm saying? Their Marxism, and I, I'll see Marx books all the time has nothing to do with the bullshit cultural Marxism that's over here in the States or whatever you want, campus Marxism, when it's all about identity and culture wars. None of that stuff. They're very religious. <laughs> they pray on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They don't believe in gay marriage. They don't believe in abortion. I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. What I'm just saying is that they're socially conservative. And, you know, like we've had talks about the gender uh, situation here and they can't believe it sometimes you know and this yeah, is when yeah. you go to some of the poor areas and you know nicaragua and stuff but i used to make the joke is like they're like trumpers that speak spanish it's just their economics is about marxism sometimes mm-hmm. and whatnot and it's i'm not saying that's right but it's a misconception because when people think when, when people use the term here you marxist you know what i'm saying which i've seen yeah, some people i know immediately yeah it's come on, guys. Like, and and it bothers me because it's playing into the leaders or the ruling class's hands to keep people divided. You're a communist. You're a fascist. You're a capitalist. You're a socialist. It's like, guys, stop. And and I think because we were in that whole Tulsi campaign, we were able to see the crossover. And you know what I'm saying? And and, and unfortunately, in the United States, the left party is not left at all. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like. Not from what we consider to be leftist, you know, what left is like, you know, I mean, I I, I want to have I want to have responsible, nuanced conversations about how we treat the planet. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think there's mm-hmm. I'm not an alarmist when it comes to, um, you know, global warming and stuff, but I don't want us to frack. I would ban fracking in a heartbeat because it screws our water. It screws up our water and I don't want to deal with it. You know what I'm saying? Um I, I, when it comes to all our bases, our army bases and our military bases, I want those son of a bitches closed. I want them closed tomorrow. I do believe healthcare is a human right, but I don't want the government controlling my healthcare. But so it's there's quagmires there. But you know, I mean, I still have leftist values. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. And in like you know, I believe in co-ops and that kind of thing. And and that as you know, as a capitalist, I would ask you. And you know, a lot of libertarians, I know they're this Austrian economics that the Mises caucus is talking about, mm-hmm. they refer to, and I know it's he, when, when my friend Jeffrey P Hurley, who's the chair of the Clark County uh, um, libertarian party, I said, would you call it compassionate capitalism? And he's like, ah, I don't know if you would call it that, but yeah, I mean, so it's like, I, I think there's, you know, I, I know the, the whole part of a lot of the economics when it comes to the libertarian party is removing the entity that's always in the way, the government and the hurdles. Mm-hmm. But as a leftist, I still want to find ways that we can allocate money and resources to those who need it most. Yeah. Have, did you see uh, Peter Schiff go on Jimmy Dore? That was a crossover I never thought I'd ever see. Where I don't know if you that? caught that episode. That was a few months ago. <laughs> but I, think, I, I think I did see it. I think I saw bits and pieces of it. Fascinating to watch because, I, I mean, it, it, we're just having... It's like you said, all the lines are disappearing. Like it's just becoming a, a weird situation where, you know, people realize they care about the same thing and they hate the same thing. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, when Peter Schiff is kind of the guy who really influenced me economically when he went to Occupy Wall Street and he's talking to all, I don't know if you've seen this video, but I think it's back in 2010. Um, he's out 2010, I think. I forget. It's, it's somewhere around there. Um, he's out there on the street walking around talking to a bunch of teenagers. He's out there for like three hours and he's talking to them about what the structural problems are. And it is like, you know, the Federal Reserve bailing out all these giant corporations and taking money from the poor and giving it to the rich. And then when there's more inflation, the rich can buy up assets that'll appreciate along with inflation and the poor get screwed over. So, I mean, I guess you could call that compassionate capitalism, realizing that, yeah, I mean, the thing is like at the beginning of uh, all this shit with COVID back in 2020, everyone was screaming, like, we need to just print off money. We just need to do it. We need to do it. And it tugged on a lot of people's heartstrings. And a lot of people were saying, look, if we print off money, first of all, the government's not going to give it to the people who need it. They're just not, regardless of what we'd want them to do. They're going to give it to corporations and they're going to pat themselves on the back and, you know, buy some more aircraft carriers with it or whatever. But then on top of that, even if they pump a ton of money into the economy, it's going to ultimately benefit the rich because, Maybe the poor people can use it to get one week of groceries or one week of gasoline or whatever, but they can't save it because they don't have any savings, you know, in reserve. So they just got to go buy whatever they can. And then it's all going to end up floating to the top where people can actually buy assets that will appreciate along with inflation. And then sure enough, that's what happened. You know, trillions of dollars printed off and all injected into yeah corporations and then inflation just wiped out the middle class and the rich are doing okay because they could buy stuff that would appreciate along with inflation yeah yeah i mean i and and see i think that's the 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 where we might have a little bit of a difference and so was there is like it's not so much the printing of the money which they way they printed up so much too way too much money mm -hmm. and they could have done it responsibly but when they were forcing people to stay locked down it was just yeah. the allocation process. I thought that was like who they allocated the money, who got the money. You know what I'm saying? Because you said like, you know, all these rich corporations got it. And if they were responsible and they gave it to the people, you know, wouldn't that yeah. have been better in a way? I mean, they, they it had there better. Has to be, it, it would have been better. But there has to be some type of, uh, you know, compensation, compensation of sorts when you're shutting everything frigging down. You know what I'm saying? It's like you crush people's livelihoods. You can't just, you know. Oh, yeah, no, it was criminal. Um, the thing is, like, where I where I got to in 2020, at the beginning, I was like, hey, the government should do this. And then, you know, <laughs> they did nothing that they should have done. And then by the time the third bill went through or something, I was just like, you know what? It doesn't matter what we think they should do. It, I mean, it, it literally doesn't. Like, when you have people like Bernie Sanders, who supposedly stand up for the working class and care about poor people being screwed over by corporations voting for the cares act yeah like it's just over like there's there's it doesn't matter what we think they should do yeah. it just comes down to the fact that when something like this is going to happen they're going to do what they're always going to do so i i went through a transformation in 2020 i used to you know really think the way to go was try to get someone in office who would dismantle this from the top down take the head off of the beast and, you know, kind of try to stabilize things. And after 2020, I just gave up on that. I mean, I, I think there's value to like if Dave runs for president or something, I think there's value there because he could bring attention to things. But I'm not under any misconception that he'll win. And even if he did, he wouldn't be allowed to do anything that would actually fix anything. Where I am is like it's all about starving the beast. It's all about, you know, pushback against the federal government. Um, and that's why I moved back to New Hampshire for the Free State Project, because I just um, I, I don't think that, you know, regardless of what we think the government should do, it's just never going to do it. And we're so far past the point of no return. I don't see it fixing yeah. itself and writing the ship anytime soon. I think there's something something there with anarchism. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The, pro the funny thing is, is that I never like when I first heard about anarchism, I was like, ah, you know, obviously the bad name. And then I met a guy named Keith McHenry from Food Not Bombs, and mm -hmm. uh, he made the Anarchist Cookbook. But it was it was a, a retake, like kind of like it was about uh, uh, recipes, vegan recipes to feed the uh, homeless and Food Not Bombs. Mm -hmm. And he talked about anarchy in this beautiful way. And it's just I'm like, okay, I get it now. I see it. You know, it's yeah. Uh, nobody I has to stop on violence. You know, 
I had a similar transformation because it, it was funny. Like in the fall of 2020, I, I really just like didn't want to consider myself an anarchist because it just sound it's like a ugly term in my mind at that point. It was like, ooh, I don't want to like admit that. That just seems like nuts and no one will want to listen to me. But then after they passed that covid bill in december of 2020 the one that trump like originally said he wasn't going to sign or whatever and then yeah. he capitulated and signed it i was just like god damn <laughs> like, yeah. i mean the idea that we need some government you know because they're going to be the responsible guys and then i realized on top of that like the minarchist like minimal government argument is that the government isn't capable enough to run the minuscule things in our lives so we should only have them run the most important things and i was like yeah you know god damn like this really doesn't make much sense but I, I i don't know what i i call myself like a practical anarchist at this point like i realize government isn't going away um yeah, yeah. I, I mean i'm also an atheist and i call myself like a practical atheist because i realize religion isn't going away and then similarly to religion i, I realize like some people just need government. Like, I wish that weren't the case. Like, some people need religion. Some people do need some sort of framework holding them together. And they're as long as they want it, they're never going to let it go. And that's okay as long as, you know, I can make my own decisions. So I just go where the least amount of government is. And, um, you know, New Hampshire is pretty peaceful. Uh, you know, you spent a lot of time here. And uh, I think culture is really important, too. Like, I, I think... A lot of anarchists miss the point that, you know, if you don't have a peaceful society, then anarchy really isn't going to work. Like it, it, it's a it's a it's a dual uh, it's a dual front battle. You got to get people to trust each other again and actually take care of each other. Like you're talking about, like if you have people who aren't willing to help their neighbors or help their family when they need help monetarily or they need, you know, help building something in their backyard or whatever, then the government's never going to go away. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, I think as the government's gotten bigger, that sense of community has gotten smaller. People do less and less and less for each other. So the flip side of that is if we want this stuff to go away, we've got to start taking the initiative and doing this stuff yeah. for our family, for our friends, and then it'll become, you know, unnecessary. Do you, ever, do you ever see the the Holy Grail? Uh, uh, Monty Python. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the the scene in the beginning with the thing with the, who lives there, and he's talking about an anarch, anarchist society and yeah, how yeah. they you know, how they do the voting <laughs> and stuff. The two <laughs> guys who have the sacks yeah. over their heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, scene, who yeah. are you? We're your king. Oh, you're the king. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the violence is embedded in the system. You see what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ian Davis is kind of cool. We've had him on the morning show several times. E, I first saw Ian, and it's funny because uh, I didn't see him when he was on with Steve, but I saw Ian Davis do a panel with um, Tom Luongo, Whitney Webb, Matt Errett, and what's his name? The dude, uh, Robbie Wagaman, I think his name is. The dude is in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think that's his name. The, I saw them do a panel, and it was awesome. But we had Ian Davis come on. And he talks about like these old school systems that were kind of like, uh, I don't know if they were ever used, but he talks about a several like an anarchist system, how the, the rotates with the people kind of governing of sorts, you know, so mm -hmm. therefore there's no one hell power that can, can get continuously strong. You know, I mean, it's I think we need to that's the whole beauty of anarchism in a way is that. I look at it a little bit like Bitcoin sometimes, like its own ecosystem, right? There's mm -hmm. no centralized mechanism. So why can't we have a government where there's no centralized mechanism and just, you know, live free? And, and you're right. It's going to take a long time for us to get back there because being practical, knowing the government's not going away, it's not going to relinquish its power for quite some time. Also, like you said, the people have kind of now been less part of community. There's a form of narcissism in their political ideology because mm -hmm. their life there's part of uh, narcissism because they don't have to communicate with their community. They don't have to be part of it. They can, somebody could stay inside their house, not speak to anybody, have their food, everything delivered to them, not be part of society in any way, shape, or form. And when you have that type of uh, community, you know what I'm saying, with a bunch of individuals, you don't have a community. So it's... Uh, 
it's interesting, but I'd like to see us get there one day because it is. I hate the fucking violence that's going on. That's really just ignored on a regular basis, you know. But now I understand, you know. If if I would have saw your opening video to this to your show here a couple years ago, I'd have been like, ah, oh, he's one of those guys. <laughs> Loves his guns. Now yeah. it's like, yeah, I want to <laughs> shoot one of those with him. And people are like, why do you want a gun now? All of a sudden, I'm like, because the state. I don't want the state the only have one out. I don't want these assholes being the only ones with guns anymore. That's it. No more. So I've changed there too as well. But yeah, I mean, I get it. But I don't know. We're, we're I just think we're so far away right now. If we didn't have yeah. those guns, probably we'd probably be under uh, a oh, lot yeah. worse, you know, oppression. Literally. Yeah, I mean, a lot of other countries that don't have as many guns as we do ended up a lot worse over the last couple of years. I. I I don't know if you watched it. I watched Tulsi Gabbard's episode she did about how she changed on gun control. And I don't know how much of that is uh, sincere, but certainly the um, the thought process she laid out, I have seen that mirrored in a lot of people on the left over the last couple of years who were like really pro gun control. And they a lot. of I mean, I probably know personally a couple dozen people who consider themselves more left wing who have completely flipped on that. It is pretty incredible. Yep. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's one too. I'm open about what about these mass shootings? Go talk to the FBI. Yeah. Every single one of those. <laughs> Before, instead of saying where did he get the gun from, but blah, 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 all this stuff. First thing you look at is, does he, has he ever had connections with the FBI? You know, and, and, you know, Steve said something interesting. It's like you don't even need to MK Ultra these people anymore. In society nowadays, we got our kids so drugged up, so much Adderall out there, all this other the antidepressants and all this stuff. And, and the way society's built, you can radicalize a kid just by flicking a switch, a couple posts, and he'll, he'll snap very easy. I mean, that's just the way it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, well, I'm glad we had this discussion, man. We'll have to talk again soon. I'll be coming on your show at some point soon. And maybe Monday, um, maybe I Monday. Check, I got to check yeah. the schedule, get you up nice early in the morning, uh, and see if we get you on brother, have some fun time. But when you get back from Maine too, let's just, uh, let's hook up for sure. Yeah, no, I think, uh, these, these types of comments, I've, it's funny. I've been talking, I talked to, uh, Jackson Hinkle, uh, yesterday. I don't know if you know him. Mm -hmm. Um, very interesting conversation, you know, and I'm, I got a lot of hate for talking to him, which is kind of funny, but I, I actually like getting a little hate for, because, you know, I don't, are you familiar with the plank that used to be in the Libertarian Party platform that was, we condemn bigotry as irrational and repugnant. It was just kind of this corny thing. Uh, so we would say that about anything just as a joke. Like I condemn, you know, this as irrational and repugnant. And it is a libertarian thing. A lot of people, like if you talk to anybody outside your circle, they want you to make it very clear that you disagree with them on X, Y, Z. And, you know, they want you to debate everybody about every single thing you disagree on. And it's like, I don't know. I don't think that's very interesting. And I, I've done a couple debates, like I've done capitalism versus socialism debates and stuff. And when you're going into a conversation like that, it's not a conversation. First of all, it's a debate. And you already have predetermined what you think, and you're not going in with an open mind to hear what the other side says. Yeah. And then usually your, your opponent is the same way. And then I'd say for the most part, the audience is the same way. Like they're going in with a, you know, a uh, preconceived idea of what they support. And they just hope that whichever position they have just absolutely destroys the other person yeah. where with all the times I've changed my mind, it's been from listening to people talk to each other and being like, oh, you know, that actually makes a little bit of sense. So I feel like that's the most constructive way to have these conversations because it's the only way we get anywhere. Yeah. If, if that's the whole thing with a debate, the debate me bros, bros, is that they actually are going out there to beat their opponents. Debates are supposed to be having robust discussion to come up with robust ideas. And that's the things that's going to change your mind. That's why anytime I have a debate, I kind of like label it as a discussion of sorts uh, because I want to learn something from it. Maybe, you know, maybe change my ideas on things and stuff. But so that is the way you have to approach those things. And we shouldn't be, you know, nobody should be giving hate for talking to, you know, anybody who thinks differently than them. Did you see some of the hate that like Whitney was getting for talking to Glenn Beck? I mean, it was like, come on, dude. <laughs> I'm like, come on. Like, yeah. oh, you're talking to a Ziacon. Oh, just shut up. Just yeah. shut up. I would absolutely talk to Glenn Beck if I got the chance. Like, I, 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 that's what I don't understand is like, I mean, if, if, uh, 
I don't know if Sean Hannity wanted to have me on the show, I'd absolutely take that opportunity. And, you know, depending on what we're talking about, maybe I'm not even going to necessarily blast him when I'm on the air. Maybe I can make a more convincing argument by being a nice guy when I'm up there and saying something that makes sense or whatever. You know, this is what people wonder why the Liberty movement never goes anywhere. This yeah. might be part of the reason because we're just a bunch of autistic nerds who can't just have a normal conversation with someone who, might disagree but uh, well, i do have a question though sure about, uh, you know because i've been i i mean it's uh it's interesting because like right i've been talking about what i call the great compromise i don't know why i'm saying it, it's just a compromise and i'm talking about people going into the libertarian party including myself like you know jeff Her jeffrey hurley the guy i mentioned earlier he says i'm glad we got you i'm like well you ain't got me yet you got my attention right mm -hmm. you're saying this is where i'm at but i'm very interested because of the Mises caucus, I saw, you know, I have had Dave on the show with Jimmy Dore, right? We yep. put them on together. And, uh, you know, uh, actually now the people are making the joke like, okay, why don't you compromise Dave and take a progressive, you know, Dave Dore 24, let's go. Um, but um, I'm interested to know about this Mises caucus because I've been kind of selling it to a lot of leftists and progressives. And they're like, really? You're, you're looking at the Libertarian Party? Well, A, it's the only really third party out there. Let's be honest. I have friends that are green. Uh, I probably, if you look at the Green Party, I probably, I would probably align a lot with the Green Party, maybe even more than the Libertarian Party in certain areas. But their national support right now is very, very weak. They're not on all the ballots. They're going through this transitional thing where people are breaking off in different Green Parties. They're still going with the Howie Hawkins situation, which is just ridiculous. So you want to talk about ballot access and just put together? That's the Libertarian Party. But here's the thing. They have a new sheriff in town. They have a new party. They have new management. It's uh -huh. called the Mises Caucus. And the thing I've noticed most about it is that they're very much some of the people who are very up in the Mises Caucus seem to be aligning themselves with the Ron Paul mentality. You know, Dave, I was watching the show yesterday. We had Kurt Metzger on yesterday morning. So Kurt told us about the show he did with Jimmy and Dave with these other two dudes. And we went and watched it. It was like just crazy and stuff. But David even said, he goes, I'm a libertarian in the Ron Paul sense. So I've been kind of out there talking about the great compromise. Let's maybe go mm -hmm. take a look and consider the libertarian party in Nevada, even though I don't think my vote was counted or it was washed out by a bunch of other extra dead people or people moved ballots because that's what we have in these fucking situations in this ridiculous system. By the way, the American system is worse than any place I've been to. All those other countries wipe the floor as far as credibility with their. Yeah, election. that's pretty yeah. unflattering. That South yeah. American countries have Nicaragua. Systems. Yeah, Nicaragua has got a better election system than us. You know, mm -hmm. Honduras. It is ridiculous. But um, I voted a Libertarian in the last election. I voted for one Republican. It was the first Republican I ever voted for. Mm -hmm. first libertarians i voted for but i met mm -hmm. a lot of these guys locally uh at the libertarian meetups so i voted libertarian so my question to you is is that is this something that you think a lot and you know this the crossover that you were a tulsi guy we right there so we understand the crossover how yeah. do we sell the libertarian mises caucus to the other progressives you know who are considering you know maybe looking elsewhere yeah so i i i one of the reasons I have a ton of respect for Ron Paul is he he actually never compromised. You know, I think a lot of people would think of him as somebody who worked across the aisle, and that's true, but he never sacrificed any of his principles. He had this idea that the only way we're going to ever get anywhere is through single issue coalitions. So, you know, he and Dennis Kucinich worked a lot together on like foreign policy stuff, civil liberties. I think probably drug legalization stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that way you can get together without actually sacrificing anything you think. So I, I would kind of, I would, you know, to libertarians, uh, some of them think that like, if we run someone more milk toast, more down the middle, like that'll be more impressive to people who aren't libertarian. And I don't think that's true. Like I, so like, you know, Jenk Uger is probably more moderate than uh jimmy door right but i have a lot more respect for jimmy door because he actually s stands for something right like he's he's fiery and he obviously cares about what he's talking about that's a lot more attractive to me than some left winger who's like yeah but i you know i don't really want medicare for all that's a little crazy we should like have this type of system or whatever but if they're not really 
you know, if they don't sell me on it, if they don't sell me that they're serious, even if I disagree with them, I'm just not interested. So I feel like libertarians, we're going to attract more people if we're just really serious about the issues we really care about. And I think, it, you know, if your number one issue is, uh, I don't know, some, you know, like uh, privatizing the sidewalks or something like it's probably not very winning issue. So I I really think, especially with everything that's going on right now, um, war, yeah. you know, foreign policy should be the number one issue. Um, but that, that's that, like 14 percent of the people really care about foreign. Policy. I know I mean, that is a little bit more inflated nowadays with the whole ukraine situation because of the money that's attached to it but yeah. I, mean, I mean uh here's the other question by the way how do you guys get your message out a centralized message out with a decentralized party like it's you hard. know it, it's very hard i mean keeping everybody on the same page and stuff i can just imagine that angela will probably be pulling her hair out of her heads when she sees certain stuff out there the martha bueno stuff thank god she's out of the goddamn party yeah, but no shit. Started in miami is like Okay, and I went to Freedom Fest, and I got into a little, you know, back and forth with her on her panel. I mean, she's just manufacturing consent for regime change in Cuba. And yeah. I'm like, I don't give a shit. Like, that's not libertarian. We don't get involved. That's it. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And uh, that's the, I, I, you know, you saw, I mean, I know a lot of people were like, when Joe Biden was getting out there, running around the country with people, and a lot of the candidates were like, nah, we're, you're cool. You don't have to come run and stomp. But you did see them get out there. Obama got out there. You know what I'm saying? We didn't see that with the Libertarian Party. There were some Libertarian candidates. I didn't see him out there with. And, you know, I, right now, for me, my guy in the Libertarian Party is Spike Cohen. It is. That's yep. where I'm at right now. He's great. Every time I see Dave, I am impressed. I do have issues, do have questions. Um, I am impressed, though, uh, with his foreign policy knowledge. But sometimes I'm not impressed with his decisions. And this is something that, like, you know, when he was on Rogan and he was talking about the whole Russia situation, the Russia war, he does kind of retract back to that kind of position where we got to be anti-war about everything. So you can't justify Russia going into Ukraine. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. and I'm like, yes, you can. And this is where I want, you know, somebody to take their hat off and go, they're on their border. They've been, we, there's a puppet government that overturned Ukraine in 2014. They're bombing ethnic people in the Donbass. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. They should have gotten involved. They should have gotten involved a lot earlier. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and that's just my personal opinion, and too, and I know a lot of people share that opinion. But I don't. I'm afraid because of the ideology handcuffs, and I know what ideology handcuffs mean. When you can't think for yourself or say anything, you got to stay in party form or ideology form. Mm -hmm. The whole like I got to be opposed to war no matter what mentality is somewhat of a handicap, and it doesn't allow you to call balls and strikes properly. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing, one area where I saw Dave where I was like, okay, I'm not crazy about that. I called up Clint. I told him, I'm like, yeah, Clint, mm -hmm. I'm not crazy about this here right here. I'm not <laughs> pro-Putin. I know my yeah. partner's over in Russia. I know you call us our resident commies and we joke around and stuff. I'm not here to sell you Russia, Russia, Russia. But yeah. what happened, and you know, the thing that was frustrating is Dave knows all the facts. He mm -hmm. knows what happened in 2014. He knows everything. He, I'm very impressed with his knowledge. But that all that information should say, okay, this is justified, and we need to expect these things. And the thing that needs to be pointed out is America's involvement. America mm -hmm. should never been involved, and I know he he says that too as well. But I don't know Scott Horton too. Scott Horton at Freedom Fest, he says no, they shouldn't have done this. I'm like, this is where I disagree with you guys. And I, mm -hmm. you know, it's very nice to be supporting a party that's extra passive. It doesn't. <laughs> it's it too doesn't passive. <laughs> it's very. Well, this is this yeah. is the way I look at it. So I've said this on the show many times. I look at things from two different perspectives, like idealistic, like anarchist perspective. And then there's also the real world geopolitical perspective. So, yeah. Do I think a lot of innocent uh, Ukrainians are getting killed? Yes. Is that wrong? Yes. But when we're looking at these situations from a realistic geopolitical perspective, the ideology the, the ideology kind of goes out the window because it's like well yeah i mean innocent people are getting killed and you know this sucks but what can we possibly do i, I um do you know dan mcadams from the ron paul institute he's uh he's the best he's he's the go-to guy like i love um, that dude <clears throat> he he really hammers that um that idea home that you know these people claiming that they care and i'm not talking about dave or scott right now i'm talking about like Mike Pompeo or 
any of these guys that are worried about Uyghurs in camps in China or worried about, you know, Iranian protesters who have to wear hijabs. It's like, dude, you care about Muslims in Iran or China? You're responsible for the murder of thousands of Muslims. So yeah. whenever those people are like trying to get tear jerking, like I'm just very careful. I wrote a sub stack about this. I'll send it to you after and I'll post Please. it in the show links. But it's it's called You Don't Care. And it's about it was when these first Iranian protests were taking off. And it's just about how you frame the conversation to actually make life better for these people. So if you do care about the Iranian protesters, then you want all sanctions on Iran to cease immediately. Absolutely. And you realize that airstriking Soleimani did nothing but create more sympathy for the Iranian regime from its own people. Like if you if you care about these people, and especially if you want them to reform their country or something, like leave them alone. Stop giving the government <laughs> excuses to blame it on external yeah. things, you know? So I'm I'm pretty much in agreement with you. I mean, I understand what Dave and Scott are saying from an ideological standpoint, but uh, to especially to defend Scott, like whenever I hear him talk about this stuff, he does say that. He says like, look, I am a political anarchist. I don't really believe in government, but when we're talking about like what Russia's doing or what China's doing, like from a geopolitical perspective, we can't blame them at all. Like the way the Chinese are upset about us, you know, sailing warships through the Taiwan Strait. If China were sailing warships between Cuba and Florida, there's no way we would tolerate that. We would be exactly absolutely yeah. furious. We would not we would not allow it at all. We wouldn't allow it at all. Yeah. All right, man. Well, let's uh, let's do plugs and get out of here. So where where can people uh, keep up with you and what you're doing? The Convo Couch. You can see it. Hey. <laughs> C-O-N-V-O-C-O-U-C-H. The Convo Couch on Rockman, on YouTube, on Rumble. Same thing with our other show. It's not on YouTube. It's AM Wake Up. Every morning, Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. These are the chips that we were supposed to get. They came a week after Freedom Fest. So we couldn't give you. Uh, these were like little poker chips. They got Gomez on one side, and they got the AM Wake Up symbol on the other one. We were supposed to have them for Freedom Fest because it was Vegas and stuff. But, um, yeah, AM Wake Up is Monday through Friday, uh, 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Pacific Standard Time. Convo Couch, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noonish. Uh, and you can always catch Fiorella on Rumble. And she's on RT on the news desk. Uh, she lives in Moscow now. And, uh, yeah, we uh, will be in Cuba next year for that, those elections in March. Argentina at the end of the year. So, We'll be out there following elections, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Well, thanks for talking, man. We'll uh, chat again soon. Anyone watching, if you're new, please subscribe to the channel, and I'll catch you on the next episode.